Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, this isn't unfortunately a new subject for us. And we are going to be joined now by two experts in the field of devoting their lives and professional careers to trying to reduce family violence here in Connecticut. Betsy Keller is the founder of CT Protective Moms. And Dr. Christine uh, Cocciola joins us right now. Uh, She is a social worker as well. Betsy and Dr. Christine, hello, and welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show. Hi. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Do we, do I hear dogs in the background? What, we we okay? I'm so We're sorry. Good? No, That's don't my be sorry. Associate. Yeah, of course, of course. What's your associate's name? Jesse. Jesse. Hi, Jesse. Good to see you. If I if I if I were to go any longer or open a door, you'd be hearing Yofi for sure, and maybe Shana as well. <laughs> so that's all right. We love dogs here. So uh, Betsy Keller, what is Connecticut Protective Moms? What is CT Protective Moms? What- There is no justice in family court. It's a civil court. Uh, It's an adversarial environment that breeds conflict. And if you're in a situation where you're a victim of domestic abuse, coercive controls, um, you don't understand that the uh, judicial branch, the legal system is set up for billable hours. You know, you're billing, being paid by the hour as an attorney, and the more conflict in a relationship, the more billable hours there are. And what I did not realize is, for example, there's 30,000 divorces a year in Connecticut, which is pretty much the national average here. And of those divorces going through our judicial branch, 5% of them will end up in front of a judge because of conflict, because the two people can't agree, can't uh, make it work. And Because of our patriarchal society, I'll say, um, and the pretty much patriarchal ambiance of a judicial courtroom, they are not trained. The judicial branch, our lawyers, even the folks that come in and represent your children are called guardian ad litems. If there's a conflict over custody and children, the court appoints this representative of your children's voice. But the bottom line is they've never had any experience or training in domestic abuse and the psychology of course of control so if five percent of these thirty thousand cases end up in in a courtroom because it's so so contentious that is fifteen hundred cases a year and that doesn't even count all the other cases that have conflict that come back year after year it's probably in the upper thousands of of, and there's a backlog after covid for example 1,000 family court cases stuck, um, not being seen, not being heard. And some of those women were in dangerous situations, and there was a backlog. But where I'm going with this is the 5% of those cases, they involve domestic abuse, and that's what is not being picked up in the courtroom. And the adversarial nature and the lack of education and ignorance and, and generally misogynistic bias puts women in danger Last week, Julie Minogue is a mom from Milford, Connecticut, and she had done everything she could possibly do to keep her and her three 
unsafe from a very, very violent, abusive man. She even had an arrest warrant out for him at the Milford Police Department, which they never, they never served. It just sat on a desk and went back and forth between the prosecutor and the police department. Lo and behold, we all know Julie was axed to death uh, last week in her apartment after having a protective order in criminal court, a restraining order in family court, which are pieces of excuse me, pieces of paper. And she did everything she could, and no one understood the danger she was in, which Dr. Cochiola will explain. And I started collecting numbers and emails. And lo and behold, I have 350 Connecticut moms who are in family court, past, present, and future, and they're all suffering. These are the 5% of those cases that are red flag, hallmark domestic abuse, coercive control cases that end up in a courtroom because you become re-victimized. Your abuser loves the idea of victimizing you in a court of law. It's terrifying. So I decided to collectively pull all these women together. I have a background in public relations, and I knew that I had to tell the story. And it wasn't just one story, but from a 1,000-foot view, the the 1,200 cases that go to court of the conflicted, contentious abuse cases in front of judges Those are all domestic abuse cases, and they're all the same. It's like a chocolate chip cookie recipe. If you look at their dockets in the courtroom, they all read the same. The abuser asks for full custody. The abuser hides the money. The abuser puts a false restraining order on the protected mother. And so with our strength and power of all of us together, working across the United States with leading experts, just just like Dr. Christine Cochiola, we passed Jennifer's Law. And Christine can uh, explain that a little bit further. But I knew that we had to be protected in court. You have to change the wording of the law to include coercive control. Otherwise, our judges were following a law that was so antiquated that domestic abuse only meant you were being chased with a machete, Julie Minogue was, or you're being chased by a gun. And if that weren't the case, then it's not domestic abuse. So we redefined domestic abuse. Thank you, Betsy Keller, founder of Connecticut Protective Moms. And, you know, I'm listening to you, and I'm going to, I would like to get to Christine in a moment, but it's, um, it's interesting to me, your view. And one should also say in that view, and I am a lawyer, uh, that all three of the family court judges in Stanford are women, that over 50% of the bar is women. That, uh, and so I'm listening to you and I'm saying, and I'm thinking to myself, you're right, that a lot of this has to do with systemic things that an individual's particular gender can soften or change an approach to a case, but it's not going to change a system unless the laws that they have to look to to make a decision understand this very abusive dynamic. So, Chris, so absolutely. Chris, and interestingly yeah. enough, I'm yeah. just going to throw this out there. Some of the female judges mm-hmm. have been the harshest on our Connecticut protected mom. The Why? harshest. Why? And Why? this is my opinion. This is anecdotal. We've talked about it. Sometimes I feel they, it reminds me of the women who worked on the training floors in the eighties who slowly became androgynous. <laughs> very masculine i think they're in a very patriarchal masculine environment and they're trying very hard not to be biased um secondly it's a lack of education just because you're a female doesn't mean you understand the dynamics of living in a home with someone telling you how awful you are every day how incompetent you are and giving you five dollars a week in fairfield connecticut to live off of so that there's there's a true lack of empathy and personal Uh, You know, that comes from personal experience. I don't expect every female judge to have gone through, you know, but they need the training from someone like Dr. Cochiola. And just so you know, one of the first things taken out of Jennifer's Law, we worked with Senator Alex Kasser. She's the one who introduced it. One of the first line items, by the way, in every state that I've been working across the U.S. with experts um, and policy legislators, they take out judicial training. It's the first thing to go. And that's because the judges are intent on having only judges and trained judges. They're having intent on what? Uh, that judges can only train judges 
and they can't be trained by advocates, which I understand because there's some bias. But the the training is akin to like what three hours of an intro class to domestic abuse when they get appointed to the family court uh, branch. So three hours is not going to really create an expert. We need. We need Dr. Cochilo. We have Lisa Fontes in Massachusetts. There's two or three experts on this, and they're the ones, you know, they're our foot soldiers. We need them out there educating. And it doesn't matter if you have a female judge or a male judge. It does not matter. The underlying um, misinterpretation is a woman will lie about allegations of abuse. And problematic there's actually research out there women only lie two percent of the time there's actual research and 80 98 percent of the time she's really telling you what's going on in the house that she's afraid for her life and her children's life or she can't function because she's homeless and penniless dr christine uh let me have you weigh in here with your expertise what is coercive control and very specifically tell us some of the fact patterns that would comprise coercive control? Sure. So first of all, I think it's really important that your listeners understand that coercive control is the foundation of most domestic abuse. And I call it domestic abuse because it's not always violent. Like like Betsy referenced, we really have historically looked at domestic quote-unquote violence through the violent incident model. And really what we know is that most domestic abuse is based on a pattern of someone wanting to have power and control on another person. And so it really starts off oftentimes non-physical. It may end up physical, which is what we saw with Julie, in that, you know, certainly there were other experiences in their relationship, but that ended, unfortunately, when it ends up physical, it can also be mostly deadly. Women are safer in an alley than they are in their own home. We know this from research. A woman is murdered every 11 seconds because of domestic abuse. It is based on power control. There are very few cases or that where it's situational violence. What we know is about 90% of these cases actually intensify post-separation. So the moment that a victim has come forward and said she and says she wants a restraining order or she's leaving, that's the moment that she is most at risk. So we often ask, why does she stay? Why doesn't she leave? Well, because first of all, the pathology of these abusers is to keep people lured in the relationship. If I'm trying to have power over you, I am keeping you entangled in my web of coercive control. And the way that I do that is I give you some intermittent reinforcement. There may be some good positive times. The one thing I would say about Julie's case that is most startling to me, I mean, there's so many things startling, but the fact that they keep highlighting that he had a substance use issue. And frankly, substance use does not make murderers. Frankly, it doesn't. Power and control makes murderers. Coercive controllers are murderers, and this is what we know. So we really have to shift our lens and look at the perpetrators, pivot to perpetrators, and say what is going on in our world that is creating this these patriarchal norms and beliefs, going back to your comment about judges, the issue I believe continues to happen is that there is either ignorance, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, but there's not a lack of understanding of coercive control being the foundation of most domestic abuse. When a victim comes forward and she's telling you something happened, we need to listen. That's number one. We need to assume she is is she is less safe than she's ever been the moment she comes forward. That's number one. And number two, so it's ignorance or it's ego. And the most frightening thing for me is that if this is about judges and lawyers not being willing to learn. I agree with that. I agree with that. that. Christine, I agree with you. I see ego in the way, and I am a judge, by the way. I don't know if you know that. I I do know that. Thank you. And And I see ego... I see ego all the time in the way of everything in terms of conflict resolution, understanding where a person is coming from. I see ego all the time. I try and consciously set aside my own because we all have ego. We all do. Um, Right. You know, but it's, but I, I agree with you. That's a big piece. 
Well, and so these abusers have what we call their ego compromised. They actually have significant shallow egos. And what we know is that it's related to a lack of, you know, perhaps positive regard, unconditional love as a child, or perhaps they were born ego compromised. There's a variety of theories out there, and some of them are proven. The Harvard, There's been a Harvard study recently that really nails this down. But what I would say is that if we have that in these um, in the pathology of abusers, and we also have it in family court and other court systems, how do we ever expect to protect victims? So, so it's really about putting aside this desire to, I don't need to really know more about this issue. And, 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 and by the way, a lot of times what happens is when victims come in, the judge is maybe saying this is a high conflict case meaning there's two people that are tangoing in this circumstance. That is not true. Rosenfeld just did a study, um, Rosenfeld and colleagues, in 2019. And what we know happens in family court is that abusers are drawn towards conflict. There's only one person who is high conflict, and that person is not high conflict. They are an abuser, by the way. They are a coercive controller. And they actually love the stage of family court. They love the stage of family court to ensure that they can continue to have power over the victim, either by vexatious litigation or financial abuse. You asked what the definition of course of control is. Dr. Evan Stark um, certainly propelled the definition, but it started with Biderman in 1957 in communist China, where people who were prisoners of war would, would become aligned in some ways with their abusers due to the intimate terrorism. Victims are living in intimate terrorism when you constantly don't know how you can behave to please an offender. And when that offender maybe gives you, throws you a bone, gives you some kind accolades on your birthday or whatever it is, typically they ruin birthdays, but when they do this, that almost the cognitive dissonance occurs and it makes you want to try again to keep working at a relationship that is so unhealthy. So really we need to pivot to the perpetrator and we need judges and lawyers to be willing to talk about this. The problem is we now have Jennifer's Law and so many Judges, excuse me, so many lawyers are finding they're, they're not being heard in the court. They're being actually dismissed. I have been an expert witness, and I have been told that I did not need to give testimony because the reality is judges don't want to hear this. They don't want to deal with it. And you that's know, ego, by the way. That's, well, that's scary, and that's ego. Well, you know, Christine, we're chatting with Christine, Dr. Christine Cochiel and Betsy Keller. We're talking about uh, family violence, domestic abuse, Connecticut protective moms. And uh, I'm listening to you, and I cannot tell you how many times I've had to say to actual people in my life, and I didn't practice family law for too long at all because I couldn't stand it. I didn't have the stomach for it. Um, but this is what I would have to tell my friends when they would come to me for advice. Uh, nobody cares. Yeah. That's what I'd have to tell them when they would get into the fact patterns with me of this mm-hmm. is what happened and they and and I and I and I could feel my own eyes and ears glaze over because nobody cares. Nobody wants to go into the fact pattern of what happened to you on that individual day where your husband stole your cell phone or he threw it away or he took away your computer or he shut down your ATM cards. Nobody wants to get into it because it immediately becomes, from a legal lawyer point of view, he said, she said, he said, she said, he said, she said, and everybody looks up and they say, well, you know, it's probably a little bit of both, and nobody want, nobody cares, Christine. And, and, go, and, and, and I have to tell you something. To some extent, that's always going to be human nature in a court system that is – behind and stressed and overwhelmed and is now doing things on zoom where they don't even have to look into your eyes or evaluate your body language. It's, I, I, I understand that. I understand that, but it's I not good. That. I'm not defending it. I'm just telling I you that you're, you're right. Not. You're I right. Know you're not. I think that we do have to pivot to the perpetrator and we do have to um, believe women. And, you know, it's not to say that, you know, that this couldn't happen by a man, but the the likelihood of that is much, much less as you could imagine. Yes. And patriarchal norms really, um, unfortunately embolden 
these abusers. So it's about education, which is what I'm trying to do throughout the state and actually, you know, other and other, obviously nationwide and otherwise, just really continue to educate what this concept is and understand that most, the foundation of most domestic abuse is not, oh, they had a fight. It's not, oh, you know, she's, she's dramatic. So that's why he's upset. It's the reality is most of it is about one person having power over another in a pattern form over the course of the relationship. If we look back at Julie, if we look at baby Camilla that was murdered mm-hmm. in Naugatuck mm-hmm. three weeks prior, that man was a domestic abuser. We know that. These are people who are extremely, um, for lack of a better word, they are the the evil in the world who are willing to do anything. And that's what's really important to understand is that abusers will do anything to retain control, even if it's revenge. So any listener who's listening who is a victim and saying, oh, now I shouldn't leave, right? I mean, I want to let you know from the deepest part of my heart that I hear you, that I see you, because it is the most frightening thing when you decide to leave. And we tell victims to leave, yet we don't have the proper supports in place. One of the things I said on NBC Connecticut is that we need GPS um, ankle bracelets as soon as someone has a restraining order so that the victim can keep herself safe, safe because nobody else is keeping her safe. How, how is it that the, the warrant went back to the police? Why did the judge not sign I don't that know. warrant? Nobody when, knows. When, well, this is a problem, though. The woman said she did not feel safe. What else did she have to say? Mm-hmm. He had sent 200 harassing, threatening texts. Yeah. What else did and, he have and to say? And by the way, Christine, mm-hmm. can I interject one moment here? Yeah, you go back to the reason we passed Jennifer's law, and Jennifer Dulos went to the court in her pleading. She felt unsafe. She thought he had made threats to harm her, the children. And at that point, we didn't have coercive control outlined or defined in our law. So that judge was following the law that said she had to be in, quote, unquote, imminent harm and danger. And according to that female judge in Stanford, she wasn't in any danger. It was just words. But and those I still words haven't found her body. Volumes. So by changing what was so surprising with the case with Julian Milford is we changed those words. She said those words. She did get a restraining order. So when I speak with reporters, they're asking, yeah, but the, the judge gave her a restraining order. Right. But a restraining order in family court, maybe Christine can give more detail on this. PPM is about as grassroots as you can get. I tell people sometimes on the wizard behind the green curtain at Wizard of Oz, it pretty much is me sitting here eight hours a day on my computer. Okay, (laughs) okay. But we are a formal 501c3. And what we've done is I'm working with leading experts across the world. Uh, UK has, as you mentioned up front, has very strong coercive control laws. We work with their experts. So if a mom is a protective mom, is all of a sudden realizing that she is a victim and it's not he said, she said in the family court, courtroom, um, anyone can subscribe. And I send out, every day I send out an email alert, and it's all based on uh, scientific evidence, academic papers, leading uh, news outlets, and their coverage of family court and coercive control. And basically, it's an information source, and, and my big, huge push is education and raising awareness, you know, my PR 101 hat on. And so anyone can subscribe, and I highly recommend it. I've tried to create pages on my website for ConnecticutProtectiveMoms.org, and there's one on course of control. There's one on uh, what is legal abuse, post-separation abuse. All of those come under coercive control. And as well, uh, we have a private Facebook group for protective moms. They have to answer a series of questions to keep it relatively private. Um, And we are making a dent. We're making a dent. Our voices are being heard. And without my 350 moms, we would have never passed Jennifer's Law, which redefined coercive control in our state legislature. We were the third state to do it. Maryland and Washington have joined us. Um, So while it's Connecticut protective moms, we are interacting with moms across the U.S. And we now have a new global organization we just started because – if for me sitting here alone, it's very hard to field so many inquiries from across the U.S. It's called National Safe 
Parents Organization. It's NSPO. And we work with Tina Swithin out of California, Danielle Pollock and Joe Meyer, the leading policy experts. They helped write our Jennifer's Law. We have Marley McLean in Colorado. If you're a protective mom, you know these names. These are advocates working over the past 10 years. Um, but anyways, tonight we actually have an advocacy workshop. I'd love to invite everyone. If they go to the National Safe Parents Organization website, you sign up. And we have um, over 3,000 protective moms signed up. And tonight is all about how to become an advocate in your own state to pass a law in your own state to include coercive control and something called Caden's Law, which is protecting children in family court when there's abuse. So we're chatting with Betsy Keller. We invite you to call in if you'd like now at 203-333-9422. You can call me at 203-333-9422 and we can continue this chat. Um, Betsy, um, if coercive control is not violence, then what are what is it? And how does somebody know if they're a victim of it? So coercive control, let's back up for a minute. What we are trying to do, here's my marketing PR hat on again. I want to rebrand domestic violence as domestic abuse. So only 10% of all abuse is violent. And those are the ones we hear about. But Betsy, 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 I understand. But we're on the air and people only have a few minutes to listen. And I want you to tell them very specifically so they can recognize whether or not they're in a relationship with the hallmarks of coercive control. Got it. Got it. So uh, coercive control, as Christine said, is the foundation. So you don't have violence without the coercive control first. This is emotionally bullying, telling you you're incompetent, telling you swearing at you, telling your, you know, dog poop in the backyard, telling you your children don't love you. Uh, This is verbal abuse, screaming and yelling and, and swearing at you. This is turning your children against you, brainwashing your children that you're no good. This is withholding money, putting all the accounts in their name, giving you an allowance. It's financial abuse. It's also legal abuse. By filing a false restraining order against you that you were crying and hit him, then you get arrested. Mm -hmm. This is homelessness, someone forcing you out of your own home because you're penniless, because they have all the bank accounts in their name. It's loss of independence. It's sexual abuse, coercive sex. Uh, Because you're afraid. You end up becoming a zombie. A lot of people liken it to the the frog being boiled in the water. You don't realize what's going on at first till you're too deep in Mm -hmm. and you realize you're in trouble because you have children and and maybe you stopped working. You're a stay-at-home mom. You don't have access to finances. And then they tell you the day you say, you're abusive, I'm going to leave you, your perpetrator says, you're going to lose your children. And you're going to lose your children. Right. 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 So that is another tactic. Yes, it is. Betsy, all right, let's go to the phones. Ron Rubano from Trumbull. Hey, Ron, welcome to the conversation today. You're on the air with Betsy Keller, the founder of Connecticut Protective Moms. Go ahead. As a parent of somebody who went to divorce with an abusive husband, basically it was verbal abuse and some physical abuse to the kids. Uh, this, The course is an advocacy is very broke. The, the guardian night items are worth absolutely worthless. It costs a bunch of money and they do absolutely nothing. And my poor daughter, because of the, she got divorced, had to live with us for five years just to be able to make, make ends meet and save money. Meanwhile, he buys a house, takes up with a woman, and buys a boat. Why, where is that there? And what happened and with get, the children? Were there children, Ron? Did you have grandchildren? Oh, yeah, there were two kids. They lived with us for a while. And, uh, and they're both in therapy and trying to cope with this whole thing. My granddaughter refuses to basically sleep over the new house that my, my uh, ex-son-in-law has because he, that woman that he lived with, which he finally got rid of, he finally figured, figured out what's going on, um, <clears throat> is uh, refuses to stay there because of bad memories and so forth. And I know that with my grandson, I caught my uh, son, uh, ex-son-in-law Abusing him, pulling him by the ear, grabbing him by the shoulder, choking him because he didn't do what he wanted him to do. And it was n- nothing out, out, out of the ordinary. But uh, it, the whole code system is basically, as you said, the key word here, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Judges don't care. Nobody no. cares. don't care. No, that's Can what I I'm trying you, to tell Ron, you. What state, yeah. what state are, is your daughter in? Oh, right here in Connecticut. Oh, Connecticut. Okay. Can you do me a favor? Go to Connecticut Protective Moms. Subscribe, subscribe her. 
Um, I want to. I want you to know. Yes, two days ago in the New York Law Journal, a very, very prestigious two authors, both lawyers, um, wrote an article and said that GALs may be unconstitutional. And there's a huge issue with GALs because they are not trained in oh. in conflict and abuse. And not they necessarily- charge 300 to 600 an hour. You're getting yeah. a lawyer charging 600 an hour to interview your kids for two hours and then tell you that your daughter is alienating them, quote-unquote, because they don't want to be with the father. And I just sent out this week, I dedicated the whole week to this topic. So I want you to go. Can I, can I, okay. I I have to say something though. And I have to say it because I'm part of the system in my own way. And I I just want to talk about GALs in probate court, in my court. I, I only use child advocates, which is free to the family. Child Advocates, CAC in Connecticut, is a non-for-profit largely funded by the state of Connecticut taxpayer to provide highly trained, at least the ones that are in my court, and I screen them, GALs to help uh, me in court see and get evidence that I cannot gather. So let me just educate everybody before we before we blame all GALs everywhere. And I'm not suggesting oh, right. that. Now, uh, what I want to do. No, 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 no. I just want to say this. The reason that judges, the, from a judge's point of view, the reason that judges ask for a guardian ad litem whose, whose, legal, whose legal role is to represent the best interests of the child and advise the court on what that is. And it's only one person's opinion. And by the way, I don't always go with what my GAL tells me to do, but a lot of courts do, but I don't. But anyway, but what they can do that a judge cannot do is they can go out in the world and interview the camp counselor or the teacher or the psychologist or the person that gives them eyeglasses. And they can go out and they can get evidence that a judge cannot do in a courtroom because a judge can only see what the adversarial people want the judge to see. So in the ideal situation, a GAL fills in the gaps of people that both both sides may not have the time or the resources or want to bring in front of a judge. That being said, I am very cognizant of these crazy numbers, this crazy cost. So what we do is we use this organization in Fairfield County called Child Advocates, and they have people, most of them are former lawyers, but not all. Some of them are social workers or other people, and they've gone through this course, and then they act as GALs for free, for free for the family. So so just so you know, Child Advocates is in family court and in probate courts Okay, Lisa, just Just to explain myself, because I don't want to be hanging out there that I'm a GAL hater. No, I'm just Um, letting you know. There's another side. No, no, it's very important. But probate courts and civil civil courts, you know, um, and criminal court are very different than family court. A judge, you are absolutely right, is going to appoint a guardian ad litem for a child because they can't see the whole story. The children need to have their voices heard. But the bottom line is, a GAL in family court is completely different, 180 degrees different than a probate court. We do not access or have a right to have a free GAL advocate from CASA or CAC. We have to hire the person appointed by the judge. And um, the problem is, again, they're not trained. Some of them may be, but i got to tell you, out of a list of hundreds and hundreds of GALs in Connecticut, we only recommend two right now. When wow. our moms call us and say, who's wow. it's wow. two out of probably 500. I'd like to know who those two are, by the way, but thank you. I Privately, will. you can uh, tell me. Off the phone, I will the phone, hand them over. Me. So the, the problem is then the parent is held accountable for splitting my – my GA bill, the G, uh, the bill was a hundred thousand dollars. I had to pay fifty thousand dollars. <gasps> crazy numbers. Anyway, so you're right. Really, Ron? Really? Well, you know, then maybe one of the answers is systemically that judges, and I'm just saying this, and I don't know that this should be true, and I'm just going out there on a limb, but maybe judges have to, you know, choose from a pool of people well, that they are from Let a non-for-profit. Yeah. Lisa, 
2014, there was a huge public outcry from litigants in court who had been bankrupt by the system. So in 2014, we have a new GAL bill. And you have to remember, we didn't get a choice. If, if they said, here's John Smith, you got to take him. So after 2014, they, they decided that they actually went through the list of hundreds, figured out who wasn't even practicing, who had their name on there with a criminal background, whatever. They got rid of the miscellaneous ones. We still have hundreds. And then they um, gave us a choice of, I believe it's 15. They give you a list of 15 people, and you take that with your lawyer and decide who you can pick. But who pays for that? to be a huge. But who pays for that? And pay for it. Oh, oh, the litigant. So, so it's not a question of using CASA. That's what I'm asking you, or, or child no, you advocacy. Can't. You can't use CASA. You have to use who the judicial. You can no, go but on that's, their judicial. But that's what I'm saying. Right, what I'm please. saying is maybe family court judges, um, or you know, maybe they need to be more educated about their choice of somebody that won't cost the litigants money. That's what I'm saying. Because that was well, that that's was, my that feeling was the about basis. it. Of 2014 of that bill. Yeah. I don't know. I yeah. haven't heard of any great improvement. Right, I want to get to the piece that I know that you've spent a lot of time thinking about, which is the solutions piece. So tell us, you, you've passed this law, Jennifer's Law. That was clearly a big part of the solutions in getting language changed in the law. I'm also hearing as a solution that you want to insist that judges have better a deeper, more extensive training in what it means to be in an abusive relationship. What are some of your other solutions? It truly is an education for all family court stakeholders. I like to look at it as a bicycle wheel with spokes coming out of the middle of the court. So anyone that touches foot in, or, or deals with anyone in that family court, from the clerks to the marshals to the um paralegals in each office, but we need some type of incentive to create interest in the trainings and workshops because there's a lack of interest. There's a resistance to it. There's also, you know, there is the issue of what they call a high conflict divorce creates many, many billable hours and a lot of uh, payments. So there's resistance to ratcheting down the conflict in a divorce because there's less billable hours on um, so many issues but the basis of it is is understanding the gender bias in the courtroom understanding um, what coercive control is and we need judges and family lawyers to be educated and that's the bottom line and that will only come through legislative change so judges will not from my my humble understanding as a layperson the judges will not accept the training, uh, as I said before, from anyone from judges, but legislation like Caden's Law, which we're going to be introducing this year on um, through the Judiciary Committee in Connecticut for session 2023. What is Caden's Law? Uh, Caden's Law was just passed under VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. It's actually federal. And if states meet four criteria, just four criteria, they can get funding to implement these education protocols in their judicial branches. And one of those things is judicial training on coercive control. That's one of the four criteria. And if our state would pass that, we're going to be offering that up as language with Danielle Pollock and Jim Meyer. You know what? I can tell you right now. I can just tell you right now. There are 54 probate judges, 13 new ones. We have every quarter at least eight hours of training. And as a judge, I can and have influence over recommending what some of the training is. Offline, with my producer, Melissa, you and I will correspond, and I will recommend that all the probate judges get the coercive control training this year. And I will go to it myself. We'll okay, get- Lisa, that, that's exceptional. That's we'll exceptional. We'll 54 and- judges getting the training, and I will recommend it to Beverly Stryker-Fallis, our probate court administrator, and no doubt she will embrace it. Not even a question. She will want the judges to be in front of this training. Not even a question. Because we have a lot of cases of... We we need our legislators. We need folks who are on this call who are listening to us. We need you to call your legislator in your district, your state rep and your state senator, and say, we want Caden's Law in Connecticut. And we're going to be calling it a different child's name who was lost. Caden was lost in Pennsylvania, but it's the same law. 
call them and say we want Caden's Law on the books because we want our judges and family court trained. Well, and I will just tell you this. The reason you want probate judges to be trained in this is because we preside over conservatorships in which we have conservators very frequently that are divorced parents that are in charge of autistic adults and they're not children, so CAC can't provide a free GAL for them, so that's a loophole in the system that we could get into offline. But um, we as probate judges also have issues with coercive control over elderly parents. I see it. It's not just in husband and wife situations or partner situations. There can be coercive yeah, control. Yeah, and a great visual is for mm-hmm. everyone to think about Britney Spears and what happened with Britney Spears. Correct. Correct. On a very, very public right. level. <laughs> well, that's right. So, so that's why this training, when you're looking and analyzing relationships, I think it's very important for all judges to get it, is my point. We've got a caller, Trevor from Greenwich. Trevor, welcome to the show. You're on the air with Betsy Keller, the founder of Connecticut Protective Moms. Hi. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Hi. Good morning. Um, hold on. I'm going on. Um, I am so glad to hear this conversation going on right now. And, of course, Betsy's done an immense amount of work. And thank you, Lisa Wexler, for promising to uh, get trained and all this. But it's not just you guys. It's also us. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And we need training on coercive control, gaslighting, toxic relationships. And I believe there this could be very broad-based. Um, and, in fact, I think every high school should have a relationship 101. This so is do what I. Like. Trevor, I can't tell you. I was just talking about this yesterday on the air. That's all I ever preached to anybody. I was with Lieutenant Governor Susan Beisowitz on the air on our show, and I said that this, you know, we're, unfortunately, we're spending an hour talking about relationships that have spiraled out of control And we haven't spoken about the root causes, but we need to work Mm -hmm. on both, right? Mm -hmm. We need to try and prevent future men acting Mm -hmm. like this with women, because that's mostly what it is, not in all cases, but mostly. And we have to figure out what are these root causes. And right away, right away, teach people, teach young people how to be in relationships and respect each other and have healthy boundaries and and, exactly. and I believe that believes in high school. So exactly. if you give me a choice about whether or not I want to teach my kids trigonometry or the dynamics of having a healthy, successful relationship mm-hmm. in a finite mm-hmm. world of money and resources, I will mm-hmm. take relationship building every single time. Mm-hmm. I believe that. I, I believe in that. And it shouldn't be a, a either or, of course. No, it, it should shouldn't be. And, of, of course. course it should be. Um, but we, we as a, as a, as a people, as a human race, we, we need to bond. That's just the way we survive. Right. And if we don't have healthy bonds, this is the sort of thing that happens. And, and, and again, I, I, and my heart is hurting. I wish I'd been elected. You guys might well, know this that. This is Trevor Crow. Hi, Senate. Trevor. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hi, I Trevor. lost my 89 was, votes. Oh my. How, that's so painful to be so, so close. Painful. Yeah, but I have talked to Betsy about this. I would be a hundred percent behind Caden's law, but it would be a different name, name of course. But but overall, family court reform, where everyone understands what this course of control means, that there were breaks on on just bringing your your spouse back to court year after year after year, which I have many clients who are going through this hell and continue to do so and get drained. You know, well, let me ask you something. To get your her. license re-up, don't you have to have mm-hmm. a certain amount of what we call CLE, continuing education? Absolutely, yes. We call them CEs, credit, um, educational credits. And, and yes, in fact, I, I just went back and I was kind of uh, discussing this with Betsy Keller as well, which is I'm going back and re-studying, re-upping on my toxic relationship course control, gaslighting stuff, just to reorient myself. I did it a couple of years ago. I'm going to just go back and re we do it literally. I signed up for an online class yesterday. So um, we all we all just need to learn more, uh, re-educate ourselves, get up to speed, and understand what we're looking at in the therapy room. And when I was graduated from Fairfield U back in 2006, we had none of this. There was zero gaslighting, <laughs> toxic relationships in any of our courses. So this needs to be in the school process for counselors, uh, licensed marriage and family therapists. Um, social work, et cetera, et cetera, because it's so pervasive. Thank you, Trevor. 
Go ahead, Betsy. I just wanted to say hello, Trevor. Good morning. Um, Trevor works with clients. Uh, Judy Hippo, I don't know who those clients are, but we know they're in family court. And you know what's interesting to me, objectively, listening to the two of you, if we could um, acknowledge the abuse and keep Mm. it out of family court when it comes to the dissolution of a relationship, I mean, those 9,000 backlog cases in family court, are those due to toxic relationships? What percent are due to coercive control? And if we could get it out of the adversarial nature of that mm-hmm. courtroom in front of a tribunal, let's put Trevor, a judge, and a family lawyer on a tri- you know, a panel, and that's who right. you're going to be tossed in front of. So um, think about the money saved on the state level mm. of helping to hand hand escort 9,000 cases through to a safer, healthier side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Trevor. Betsy, I have a question. Is there a model of another country or a state that you look to that does it better than we do it? I'm going to say this. I'm pretty proud. I think Connecticut's doing one of the better jobs. Um, we've only had the new law for a year and a half, and I got to tell you, I get calls. So first was Hawaii, then California. A uh, little bit different. Like in California, we recently held a workshop with the the prosecutor who was in charge of, of drafting their legislation. They had to stick their coercive control law under disturbance of peace. So somehow, I'm not, I'm a layperson. I don't know legalese, but it's stuck under there. I get calls from people in California all the time. They're like, I don't understand why is everyone helping the moms in Connecticut and no one's helping anyone in California get this through, get people to listen in, in the courtroom. And I was like, it's going to take an army of moms. No, but what and I'm saying I, to you is, uh, let me let me give you an example for what I mean, because okay. you're talking systemically. And I'm hearing you that mm-hmm. we're making incremental changes, but there's a lot of work to do. Many years ago, I had a friend and they were they went back to Switzerland and they got a divorce and right away and this was not a coercive control situation it was a it was a divorce but right away what does he do when he realizes she's leaving him is he cuts off all her money i mean this is very typical very very typical okay cuts off all her money she goes to court now this is switzerland a tiny little country she goes to court and it in a nanosecond okay she doesn't even need to hire a lawyer in a nanosecond not only is her bank account opened for her, but his wages are garnished with her child support, and, well. it's, and it's done. In other words, they're not fighting over it. They make a decision. They looked at his income. Everything was reported, so there wasn't any kind of person who was hiding money under the table and those issues. He worked for a bank, and, and I said to my friend, I, I can't believe it. It doesn't work that way here. She said, you know, in her French accent, you know, what's the problem? Like, you know, he has to pay for his children. Easy peasy. And if he didn't, and they didn't garnish it, he goes to jail. And she said he knows. If he tries to monkey around, they will pick him up and he will go to jail. I'm just wow. saying, I, and, and that's Switzerland, and that's a tiny country of a few million people and very, very much about law and order. But I was just wondering if there was, in your research, if you had come across just a, a different or a much better uh, model. No, flat, flat out no. Now, no. understand that child support is taken very seriously because it's in the legislation that if you do not pay child support, you will be garnished, you will go to jail. Correct? Okay. Yes. Alimony does not count. And here's the deal. You have to change. You have to change the language in your laws to protect women. And that's where we're headed. There's a big fight against it, but we need to have the laws or they, it is not, it, there's no accountability, none. Okay, Betsy Keller, thank you very much for joining us today. This has been uh, a good, deep, and wide discussion with a lot of people listening and, and writing to me on the side. And I, I want to thank you for your advocacy. I'm getting more than one email sometimes a day from you, it seems like, or maybe it's just three coming. <laughs> But they're, they're informative, they're passionate, and, you know, you're a warrior for, for these women and some men, it should be said as well. You're a warrior for these Absolutely. people Absolutely. who find themselves 5% in these, are men. Yeah, yeah, in these coercive control relationships. I did have one question for you from a listener. Are you involved with Deborah Greenwood? 
they wanted to know of the domestic violence okay, coalition. Deborah Greenwood is the executive director of the Family Center for Justice. It's out of Bridgeport. We have 18 domestic violence agencies in Connecticut, and that's Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. That's a mouthful, but there's 18 mm-hmm. agencies, and they all have a catchment area. So, for example, um, Deborah's area, I believe, is Bridgeport and, let's say, Norwalk. They, only three of our DV agencies in the state have the ability to help people legally, which really means they have a full-time lawyer there, but truly their bandwidth and their funding is about helping someone file a motion, helping figure out how to get to court. They are not allowed to represent you in court. They can't appear with you. They can't speak for you. So the... I liken it to a heart attack. When you go to one of the agencies, they do an amazing job in the acute stage. You have a heart attack, everyone takes care of you. But the minute you leave and you enter family court, it's not in their mission statement or their funding to escort you to court to help you through this. That's a you know half a million dollar legal you know exercise. Mm. So Deborah Green was doing a great job out of uh, Norwalk Bridgeport. But again, that's only people in Norwalk Bridgeport they can attend that and they help them file motions and give them a little counsel but that's why i created cpn i figured out we had to help ourselves so if you are a subscriber to to cpn if people get to know you it's not a quote support group but it's an informal network where women can talk to each other and get help Absolutely. I answer every email. I answer every call. Okay. Good for you. I, um, <laughs> what I do, it's like a dating service. Okay. I hate to say this. Oh, I match so people good. up. So I find two moms in similar cases, and I put them together for support. Good for you. All right, Betsy, a pleasure to get to know you. Thank you very much for the work you're doing on behalf of all of these people in Connecticut, their children as well. Thank you, Lisa, for this Thank opportunity. You. I appreciate sure. it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com.